It was July 1st, 1916. Twilight. The perfect time for a swim. The sun was starting to sink a little, taking some of the summer heat with it. Heat that had driven more tourists than usual to the town of Beach Haven, a resort town on Long Beach Island, New Jersey. One of those people was Charles Vincent. He was on vacation with his family, staying at the Ingleside Hotel. He had arrived by train from Philadelphia and was no doubt looking forward to the calm of an easy beachside weekend holiday, far from the stress of his job as a stockbroker. He wandered down to the beach before dinner. There was a dog there playing in the surf, a retriever, and Charles couldn't help but play with it. He chased the dog into the water, tasted the salt, felt the cool waves lap away the heat of what had been a sweltering July day. He didn't venture far into the surf, just a few yards from shore. But Charles and the dog were not alone. A silent watcher circled, calculated, then struck. Charles felt something tear his leg, and when he cried out, witnesses thought he was merely shouting in play with the dog next to him. That was until they saw the fin. There was a shark in the water. Onlookers rushed to help him, including Alexander Ott, a former U.S. Olympic swimmer. The shark fled, and Charles was pulled to shore. The flesh on his left thigh was gone. A tourniquet was placed around his leg. But it was too late. The shark had severed Charles' femoral artery, and he bled to death. Sources give varying ages for Charles, but his grave marker lists his age at death as 23. His obituary claims that witnesses said he wrestled with a nine-foot shark. His death was a shock, one that would ring out far and wide across the entire country. Partly because so little was known about sharks in 1916 that some people, including some ichthyologists, didn't even believe shark attacks were possible. But also because what happened in the following 12 days was a trail of death and teeth and terror from the water that no one had ever seen before. And it would ignite a fear of sharks that reverberates all the way up through today. This was the beginning of our fear of sharks. Let's get in the water. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. If you saw the movie Jaws, and it instilled a fear of sharks so deep into your psyche that you couldn't even go into a swimming pool without being just a little bit afraid, you are not alone. Jaws was a novel before it was a movie. It was written by Peter Benchley and first published in 1974. Before it even hit the shelves, film producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown bought the movie rights, later selecting Steven Spielberg to direct. 
The movie came out in 1975 and has been haunting our dreams and our irrational fears of pools and bathtubs ever since. But our fear of sharks and our fascination with them goes back much further. The attacks of 1916 sparked a hysteria that stuck, and when audiences flocked to the theaters in the 1970s, sharks were reaffirmed into the minds of many as the villains of the oceans. Killers that lurked in the deepest and darkest places, silently stalking human prey. But in reality, sharks are not the fearsome, human-flesh-eating monsters they have been made out to be, but are an important part of our ocean's ecosystems. Shark attacks do obviously occur, and being alert when swimming in waters where sharks are known to prey is important. But typically, humans aren't on the menu. When it comes to human deaths caused by animals each year, sharks don't even make the top 10 list. Far from it. That list of the world's top 10 deadliest animals is as follows. And these are estimates, and numbers vary by source, but according to the World Atlas, at number 10, we have crocodiles, causing around 1,000 deaths a year. The tapeworm is number 9, with 2,000. Number 8 is the roundworm, at 2,500. The freshwater snail is number 7, at 10,000 deaths. The assassin bug, I don't even want to know what that is, clocks in at slightly more deaths, but still averages around 10,000, as does number 5, the tetsi fly. Number 4 is dogs, specifically rabid ones, at 25,000 deaths per year worldwide. Number 3 is snakes, at 50,000, although I found a statistic from the World Health Organization that said the number of deaths caused by snakes each year worldwide is actually between 81,000 and 138,000. Humans are number two. We kill on average around 475,000 of our own species each year. And at number one, the deadliest species on Earth is... The mosquito, which is responsible for over one million deaths every year because of the diseases it transmits. You are more likely to be struck by lightning than by a shark. Let's get a little scientifically nerdy for just a minute. According to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there are around 450 species of shark, and only about a dozen of those have been involved in attacks on humans. I found varying estimates on the number of shark species, some went well into the 500s, so I went with Noah's estimate because they are a reliable source of information. By the way, as always, I'll put links to all my sources in the show notes so you can see where all this info is coming from. Sharks have been around for over 400 million years and have survived four mass extinctions. They've existed a lot longer than we have, so we aren't part of their normal diet. Sharks typically attack when they are confused or curious. Splashing humans might cause a shark to investigate, which can lead to an attack. In 2020, there was a worldwide total of 57 confirmed, unprovoked shark attacks. There were 13 fatalities, 10 of which were unprovoked. Six of those were in Australia, three in the U.S., and one in the Caribbean waters of St. Martin. 
The number of fatal bites in 2020 were more than twice the five-year average, although the number of unprovoked attacks at 57 were much lower, bringing the worldwide five-year average of unprovoked shark attacks to 80 per year. Most bites were related to surfing and board sports. It's possible that the heavy drop in shark attacks was due to the coronavirus, as less people were making their way to the beach. So I know quarantine may have sucked, but hey, there's a super small statistical chance that it kept you from being attacked by a shark. According to the UN, around 40% of the world's population lives within 100 kilometers of a coastline. Right now, that's a little over 3 billion people. Given that huge numbers of people head into the oceans each year and that the number of attacks remain in double digits, your chances of being attacked by a shark are extremely low. Although we fear sharks, they have much more of a reason to fear us. Humans hunt sharks for sport, meat, their skin, fins, and internal organs. Add overfishing into that and sharks have had a difficult century. According to an article from the Smithsonian, around 100 million sharks are killed each year. That's about 6-8% to of all sharks annually. Sharks have a slow reproduction rate, increasing in population about 5% each year. This means that they're being killed faster than they can replace themselves. But due to better ocean and fishery management, awareness, the banning of shark finning, and an increase in shark conservation, their numbers are slowly rebounding. And our knowledge about sharks is increasing as well. In 1916, when Charles Vincent bled to death after being attacked by what witnesses described as a great white, we knew so little that many people didn't even believe that a shark attacking a human was possible. According to National Geographic, in 1891, millionaire Herman Ulrichs was so certain that sharks didn't attack people that he offered a $500 reward to anyone that could prove him wrong. According to the U.S. Inflation Calculator, that's between $13,000 and $14,000 today. Once while he was hosting a party, Ulrichs jumped into the water with a shark to settle a $250 bet with his guests. As soon as he jumped in, the shark, which was probably confused and frightened by the splash, swam away, making Ulrichs so certain that he was right that he repeated the same stunt again on his yacht later, to the same effect. The idea that sharks were harmless to humans was common, and many thought that reports of shark attacks were nothing but hearsay, or the tales of fishermen. So when Vincent was killed, different theories were proposed, despite witnesses reporting that they had seen a shark attack him. According to George Burgess, director of the Florida Program for Shark Research, some suggested the attack was a sea turtle, or even a swarm of sea turtles. I can't imagine that seeming more realistic than a shark attack, but that was a real theory at the time. An orca attack was also proposed, because back then, people believed that orcas really were killer whales. As of this recording, the number of people killed by wild orcas still comes in at zero. So our understanding of marine life in 1916 wasn't great. Charles Vincent was buried. Rumors and stories trickled out and away. The beaches remained open, and beachgoers continued to enjoy their summer, and the attack would have faded from history, if 
that had been the end of the story. But five days later, lightning struck again. July 6th, a Thursday. This time it was offshore near the Essex and Sussex Hotel in Spring Lake, New Jersey, 45 miles or 72 kilometers north of Beach Haven. Charles Bruder was out for a swim. He was about 90 meters from shore when he began thrashing wildly in the water. Witnesses thought he had capsized in a red-bottomed boat, but when the lifeguards paddled out to help him, they realized with a shock that there was no boat. The red in the water was blood. When they pulled Bruder into the boat, his legs were gone. He bled to death before the boat reached the shore. After this second attack, a mere five days after the first, fear began to take hold. Resorts began installing mesh barriers in the water, and tourist season would now start to take a big hit as people began to take these attacks seriously. But there was still doubt and debate as to what had killed these two men. Surviving newspapers called it a sea monster and a sea wolf. According to National Geographic, Charles Bruder's body, or what was left of it, was examined by John Treadwell Nichols, ichthyologist at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. He concluded that an orca had killed Bruder as he still didn't believe a shark could kill a human being. In less than a week, he would be proven wrong. And there would be more blood in the water. I want to take a minute to give you some good news. The Intelligent Speech Conference is back for 2021. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners, and I'm excited to be a presenter this year. This year's theme is Escape, so I'll be presenting on one of the greatest escapes of all time, Shackleton's Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. My listeners get an additional 10% off tickets. All you have to do is use the promo code CASH. That's CASH spelled C-A-C-H-E. This year's conference takes place on April 24th, 2021, 10 a.m. Eastern or 3 p.m. London time. I'll be appearing alongside David Crowther of History of England, Liz Covert of Ben Franklin's World, Rudyard Lynch of What If Alternative History, and around 40 other great content creators. There will be 24 hours of content in four simultaneous streams. You can interact with your favorite show hosts and fellow fans in an immersive conference experience. Tickets are 30 bucks, but are available for 20 as an early bird special. Remember to use the code CASH, C-A-C-H-E, for an extra 10% off. Tickets are available online at www.intelligentspeechconference.com shop. Okay. Back to the show. On July 12, 1916, the town of Matawan, New Jersey, was working its way through a Wednesday. It was a small town. Even today, in 2021, the population sits under 9,000 residents. Word of the strange deaths further south had reached the town, but the residents were not troubled. 
There was 30 miles, or 48 kilometers, of shoreline between them and the last attack. And even if a shark decided to swim that 30 miles, it wouldn't matter much. Matawan was 11 miles, about 18 kilometers inland, from the ocean. By the time the water from the ocean traveled inland and into Matawan Creek, it was brackish, meaning it was a mix of fresh and salt water, the salinity of the water decreasing the further inland it traveled. It was not an environment conducive to most sharks. But a fishing captain, Thomas Cottrell, saw a dark form in the water heading towards the creek. He watched as it silently drifted under the town bridge. Cottrell knew what he saw. He hurried to tell the local police chief that he had seen an eight-foot shark in the water. He was dismissed, and the report was not taken seriously. According to the Washington Post, Cottrell then began running through the streets, warning everyone he saw to stay clear of the water. But he didn't get to everyone. There was a group of workers who had just been given the afternoon off from a local basket factory. The day was sweltering, and they headed to the creek to cool off with a swim. One of the workers was an 11-year-old boy. Child labor laws were over two decades away in the U.S., and little Lester Stilwell, like many children of his generation, was already part of the workforce. I'm going to let you know right now that things don't go well for Lester. So, trigger warning, if child deaths are not something you are comfortable with hearing about, skip ahead a few minutes. When they reached the creek, Lester yelled to his friends, Hey fellas, watch me float. That's probably not where Stephen King got that line from, but wow, if that isn't a coincidence. Lester Stillwell waded out into the water. The others jumped in as well, and they started to see a dark shape head in Lester's direction. A dorsal fin breached the surface, and the boy cried out a scream that turned to gargles as he was pulled under in a cloud of red. The others who had made it out of the water began running and screaming, Shark! Shark! A shark got Lester! The hollers drew a crowd, and several onlookers got into the water. Lester had epilepsy, and some in the crowd, still not convinced a shark could make its way this far inland, believed he'd had a seizure. There was no sign of any shark, so the hunt for the boy's body began. One of the volunteers was a tailor, a man named Watson Stanley Fisher. He dove deep, groping in the darkness for the body of the young boy. Some witnesses claimed that when Fisher broke the surface, he was holding the body of Lester Stilwell. Some claimed otherwise. It isn't certain. But what is certain is that when Watson was trying to gain his footing in the thick mud, something struck him. If he had recovered Lester's body, he lost it now. The crowd watched as a shark pulled Watson down into the water, tearing at his flesh. Watson fought back, punching, kicking, but it was too late. By the time the shark let go, it had taken most of Watson's right thigh with it. Accounts say he lived for another hour or two before dying from his wound. And the shark attacks of 1916 claimed a fourth victim. But it wasn't over. 
A mere 30 minutes after Watson had been fatally bitten, a boy named Joseph Dunn, visiting from New York, was swimming a half mile downstream with his brother and some of their friends, completely unaware of the attacks that had just occurred. And silently, the shark struck again. Only 10 feet from shore, Joseph felt a sharp pain as powerful jaws clamped around his leg. Joseph's brother Michael and their friend Jacob Lefferts grabbed him and began a painful, bloody tug-of-war with the shark that was trying to drag the boy down. Luckily for Joseph, the shark let go, and the others were able to get him help. He was rushed to the hospital. Although he had been badly bitten, his leg ripped to tatters, the shark had not severed any arteries. Joseph Dunn was the sole survivor of the shark attacks that summer. What was left of young Lester Stilwell's body was found upstream two days later. On that day, President Woodrow Wilson called a cabinet meeting about the attacks. The White House agreed to give federal aid to, quote, drive away all the ferocious man-eating sharks which have been making prey of bathers. A war on sharks began. Fences went up around beaches, the mayors of beach towns had their waters encircled with netting. According to the Washington Post, lifeguards were given shotguns and harpoons. Long fishing lines were even baited with dead lambs. On July 15, 1916, the Washington Post ran the front-page headline, U.S. War on Sharks. Rewards were given to anyone who brought in a dead shark. According to the Living Sharks Museum, the Department of Treasury granted $5,000 for the extermination of any sharks in coastal Atlantic waters. In Matawan, New Jersey, village authorities paid $100 for each shark caught, dead or alive. That's around $2,400 today. As you can imagine, this resulted in a huge rush of people heading out to hunt sharks. Shark hunting became a new sport. People shot at sharks with rifles and shotguns. Some even threw dynamite into Matawan Creek. Many sharks were killed after these attacks, and we know now that when an apex predator is taken out of an ecosystem, that ecosystem flies out of balance. Finally, a fisherman brought in what everyone assumed was the culprit. It was an 8-foot, 325-pound, 147-kilo great white shark. It was caught by New Yorker Michael Schleiser, just a few miles from where the second attack occurred. It reportedly had 15 pounds of human remains in its stomach, which were believed to have come from the victims of the Matawan Creek attacks. We have no way of confirming if the remains found in this shark were actually human. Those remains are long gone. The shark was put up in a shop in New York, where the owner charged people to come and see it. But was that shark really the killer that had attacked five people within a 12-day window, killing four of them? The short answer is, we don't know. Many shark experts claim that it's unlikely the attacks can be attributed to one shark, because sharks are not known to hunt humans, and multiple attacks from a single shark is extremely rare. Shark researchers also have cast doubt on whether a great white shark was responsible for the attacks in Matawan Creek. Great white sharks don't travel 11 miles inland into brackish water, but bull sharks do. 
According to Oceana, bull sharks have been spotted as far as 60 miles upstream in rivers like the Mississippi and the Amazon. This is because bull sharks can osmoregulate or maintain a constant concentration of water in their bodies despite changing salinity levels in the water. If a great white shark traveled into brackish or fresh water, it would sink, its cells would eventually rupture, and it would die. So it's possible a bull shark was responsible for the Matawan Creek attacks, and it's also possible the attacks were caused by multiple sharks. The attacks could possibly have been carried out by one great white shark, but that theory is becoming less likely with the more we learn about sharks. That being said, it is weird that five attacks all occurred in the space of 12 days, especially when shark attacks were unknown in the region to the point where people refused to believe a shark could be responsible, at least until the body count began adding up. The 1916 attacks set fire to our fear of sharks. That fear was reignited with the release of Jaws in 1975. The book and subsequent movie caused another spur in shark hunting. The book alone sold 20 million copies and made its author Peter Benchley a millionaire. Even so, Benchley later expressed regret for writing it, saying, quote, Knowing what I know now, I could never write that book today. Sharks don't target human beings, and they certainly don't hold grudges. Unquote. Benchley later became a conservationist and an advocate for shark protection. Our understanding of sharks is much better today than it was even those few decades ago when the Jaws movie trailer said, quote, It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. We know better now, but still, maybe don't go skinny dipping at night. And if you do go out, just in case, Assume you're going to need a bigger boat. That does it for this episode on the shark attacks of 1916. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. By the way, huge shout out to Dan, my newest patron. Dan, you are the stuff history podcasts are made of. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. So stay tuned, friends. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can join the ranks of the best patrons in all of existence at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay excellent. And until we meet again, go make some history.